Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner podcast. I'm so grateful that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. And today I am honored to be joined by Erin Jean Ward to talk with her about her brand new book, Sober Spirituality, The Joy of a Mindful Relationship with Alcohol. Now here on the Learner's Corner, what we do is we literally just engage in any type of conversation for the purposes of learning and growing and becoming maybe the people that we wish uh, were there for us or the people who that were there for us. And we do that by engaging in sometimes, uh, I mean, literally any conversation, because any conversation, there's something to learn from. And today we're gaining, or we're having a conversation around alcohol and our relationship with it. And really what we want to do here on the Learner's Corner is create a place where we can talk about anything, that this is a safe place to have any conversation, whether that's a conversation where we tend to agree or that's a conversation where we tend to disagree. And today we're talking about a conversation where we could tend to disagree. And so if you enjoy uh, this conversation, if you enjoy learning about these things, please you know, subscribe to my Substack to where I'm just giving bunches of recommendations for some of the things that I'm learning from. And each week I just give three recommendations of some of the things that I am enjoying and taking things away from and some of the things that I'm learning. And it could be TV shows or movies or books or podcasts or YouTube videos or songs or quotes. Really the 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 breadth of what it could be is very vast. It, the only requirement is that it has to be something that I'm currently learning from and enjoying. And so again, you could just go to the show notes and subscribe to my Substack right there. Now, whenever I first found out about this book, I was really anxious to talk with Aaron because this is just a conversation to where there, there just tends to be not a lot of nuance. And, and, it's a com- and it's a topic that requires a lot of nuance in it, and which is why I'm so grateful to have Aaron on the podcast today. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Aaron, and then we're going to jump into our conversation. So Aaron Jean Ward is an ordained Episcopalian priest, spiritual director, sobriety coach, and speaker, and she offers a course which is Discerning Sobriety, a Substack community, and podcast, and is a founding editor and editorial editor-at-large of Earth and Altar, and she has also written for Mockingbird, The Christian Century, and Growing Christians. And without any further wait, here is our conversation. Well, Aaron, it is good to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really pumped to dive in. Yeah. And, you know, just as we're getting started, you've written this book, Sober Spirituality. And anytime that I get a chance to talk with someone who's uh, created a piece of art, and in this case, it's your book, I love hearing the origin story behind it. And so just as we're getting started, would you mind kind of uh, talking about your origin story a little bit as it pertains to uh, sobriety and spirituality and kind of how those two got intermixed and everything? Yeah, this is like my Marvel movie, right? Yeah. Like, how did you become the sort of the, the person you are today? No, I it, exactly. Uh, it's such an interesting question, because as a spiritual person, I'm like, origin is huge, right? And, and I yeah. think I'm also still originating in some ways, yeah. like I'm still becoming who I am. But um, just for a little bit of the biological background, you know, I um born and raised in Alabama, was uh, in a non-religious context growing up, but then became fundamentalist Christian. And um, in that context, uh, was taught very specific things about alcohol. Alcohol is wrong. We don't drink. That is a terrible thing. We do not do that. Mm -hmm. And um, ended up in a situation where I was in college. I sort of joke in the book, like I deconstructed before it was cool, you know, before it was a thing that was on Twitter and all these other places, I went through my own spiritual journey of um, asking myself, but what do I believe? What does it feel like at this really pivotal age in my life to begin to to wonder who I am? Um, and I ended up going through a year of discernment around my spiritual life and ended up Episcopalian. So I became part of the Episcopal Church. 
And in that context was introduced to a spiritual life that had a very different relationship with alcohol, a place where alcohol was not sinful and wrong and and terrible. It was a place where there was drinking at some church events. And um, I knew I had found the spiritual home of it is the liturgy. It is what I believe. And I also, I turned 21 right as I became a Episcopalian. So I was in this age where I was like, it is legal and it is part of, you know, different facets of my life, including my relationship with the church. And Mm -hmm. from there, I discerned a call to the priesthood. I left undergrad and went directly into seminary. So I was ordained a deacon at the age of 24, a priest at the age of 25. So... In that context, you know, coming into what does it mean to be a minister and be a priest in the church in in this context, and years into my ministry, I would say, I just began to wonder about my drinking. I had these questions of, you know, sometimes feels very social, doesn't feel like that big of a deal. Other times, I don't feel good when I wake up the next morning after I've been drinking. But I, I really struggled with what to do with the question. Um, I talk often about the fact that I felt like I had two choices. The choices were like become a teetotaler, you know, go to AA, never drink again. You know, you might not have any friends, you might not have any relationships, but you're just never going to drink again. Mm -hmm. Or keep drinking exactly the way you're drinking right now, even though it feels at times harmful to you. I didn't really feel like I had a middle way and I really needed that, I think, at that point in my life. And so I just kept drinking because, dang, if we don't choose the devil, we know, right? Like that was the world that I knew. And so why not just keep living in this world? But the question really lingered and I would, you know, take stints of not drinking, but I was always sort of holding this question and um, I didn't have a like a rock bottom moment. Uh mm-hmm. I talk in the book about hovering over rock bottom, sort of this feeling of I'm not happy. I struggle to find joy in my life, but I've kept my job. You know, it's like I don't have this big thing that's saying, hey, you can't ever do this again, but also at what cost? And through all of this wrestling, began to get to know people who had quit drinking, started to like secretly read Quitlet, you know, I would go out drinking and come home and read Quitlet before I went to bed, right? Like I was really in this middle place of I don't really know how to quit, but I also think there's something there. And over time, over these years, got to a point where I made the decision to just never drink again. And it was not a quick decision, obviously. It took a lot of time. And so when it came to writing this book, I wanted to write a book that I had hoped would be helpful for anyone. Mm -hmm. Sometimes a person is looking for, you know, I want to get sober and they need resources for that, right? But what about people who don't know where they want to end up in their relationship with alcohol? I wanted them to have a resource as well. Um, I also wanted a resource that spoke into my specific experience of my spirituality, actually being really knit into this other part of my life. You wouldn't necessarily think that these two things are so knit together. And yet in my personal journey and in the journey I have with some of my clients, I'm learning how much it can be knit together. So I wanted to offer something that I hoped would encourage each of us in our own way to be able to discern movement into care for ourselves in mind, body, and soul, because that's what it took for me to get to a place where I could choose to quit drinking and be where I am in this moment, which is a space of just really palpable joy that I didn't know before. Yeah. You know, one other part of your story that I would love to have you elaborate on, and I I want to read the quote towards it, is you say, or you said that, um, I am writing this book because God is not respecting my boundaries. I was fully dedicated to the private sober life until I was invited to preach at a clergy renewal of vows service. Can you take me back to that moment and just kind of elaborate on that story of what what made you go, okay, I, I, you know what, I need to, I need to go public with this. 
Yes, I love that you quoted that because it's one of my favorite jokes in the book because it really felt like that. You know, I I made this decision to quit drinking very private, was not going to tell anyone and um, ended up in a situation where I had been invited to preach this service, which uh, if you're not familiar with what that service entails, um, because I wasn't until I went to one, um, it is a service where all of the clergy from the region get together um, and it's usually during Holy Week. And we all renew our ordination vows. We're brought back into the memory of what we committed to when we got ordained. And I am ordained in the Episcopal Church. So that was a part of of, um, this context. And I got invited to preach and I was so honored. And I told the bishop I would love to preach that. And between being invited to preach and getting into the pulpit, two people that I knew um, had, had left ministry because of relationships with substances. So I was wrestling with this question of what do I feel called to say to a room full of clergy, right? And also this reality of clergy I know and love are struggling, clearly, right? And so I I wrote three sermons. Um, two of them were horrible, like so bad that I was willing to just share about sobriety because they were, I was like, I'd rather be a, um, rather be a good preacher and talk about sobriety than preach something terrible. Um, Mm -hmm. imagine just like a Webster's dictionary, you know, that, that level of just like, it was not inspired. It was not what I was supposed to preach. And then the, the sermon that I ended up preaching just fell out of me. Um, it really wrote me so to speak. And, it was really hard. It's really hard to not talk about something and then get up into a cathedral pulpit and tell in one of the most vulnerable contexts, I mean, my profession, my career, and to say, no, I'm going to talk about this. And I wanted to tell my story on my own terms. It was important to me that as much as a person can control, like I was able to say, like, this is my story. And so I decided to put it on social media as well. So I preached the sermon and then I went to a local coffee shop and posted it on my blog and all my social media. And then I had to drive about an hour and a half to get home. And I was driving home. It was good. It was good to not be checking my stuff for that hour and a half. But I got home and my private messages were full. And it was full of people who were saying, I didn't know anyone I knew was struggling with this. Or I'm also trying to do this. Or I'm also secretly sober. And I didn't know I had any friends who were sober. Or please help me. I'm really struggling with this. And so... Mm That sermon really started a ministry through looking and being like, wow, suddenly now that I've shared this really vulnerable thing about me, people are coming out of the woodwork from all these different walks of my life. You know, it's like we have all these different compartments of our lives, like high school, you know, all the college, all these different places. And it was as if someone from every walk of my life had reached out to me. And that was a real pivotal calling moment for me. You know, I, I I really want to get into uh, the person who is maybe struggling with alcoholism and, and kind of that tension. But you 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 raised something really interesting that uh, that made me think. And it's you know any any time that you talk about alcohol, you can get very strong reactions from sure. people. You can get people who are you know just what you mentioned, no alcohol at all how dare you do this you could get other people who are like i can't believe that you don't drink at all like are you being judgmental all of that i'd just be curious because i know that you've probably encountered both of those people very often in that and i would just love to hear like what's your what's your response whenever someone Mm. says you know what you you like the person who demonizes alcohol and the person who just says you know what anything is okay yeah no i've encountered a range of responses uh, and, and not even, you know, before sobriety, I would say we've mm-hmm. all encountered a lot of different, I shouldn't say we've all, but many of us have. And, yeah. you know, what's interesting is I, I, I think there's, you know, these, um, the end of the, the spectrum, right? There's never drink alcohol. It's terrible. Don't do it. And then there's maybe overindulging in it. And I don't think either is actually mindful. Mm-hmm. Um, to just say, never do this thing when we know it's everywhere, when we know it's baked into connection, when we know that it is part of how people do weddings, how they do these really huge parts of their lives. When we know that it's a part of sacraments in some parts of the church to yeah. just say, 
no, that's wrong. That's evil. That's actually not mindful. That's not mindful engagement with the reality of the world. And I don't think it's particularly helpful. Um, you know, telling a, a kid don't ever drink, it's terrible, does not help that kid when they're in a frat party, necessarily. They might need more tools and education and insight into, but why? Why is that something we shouldn't do? Or what would it mean for me to, you know, address the reality of this in our world, right? And then there's the other side of it, which is just the more the merrier, you know, eat, eat drink, and be happy that is also not mindful because it's not acknowledging the reality of what drinking in does to your body, how the chemical ethanol affects the body. And so, you know, first of all, I don't think anything in which we're shaming someone is actually going to help them heal or be any level of preventative care. Because what we know about shame is it actually sends us into the spirals that we end up needing to cope from. Mm -hmm. So when you're shaming someone, you're actually sending them towards some sort of coping mechanism. And for many people, alcohol is a coping mechanism that feels accessible. So I'm not a fan of shame. Uh, most of the work I would say I actually do is destigmatization and shame resilience, because I know that that's really kind of the bedrock of us getting into healing. Mm -hmm. And I would say, let's just be attentive if you're drinking, right? Um, I don't, I care about you, ergo, I don't want you to be in a space of harm. And so mm -hmm. binge drinking is harmful. It will harm you. And so how can we do harm reduction and bring you into a place where that's something that isn't so hard on you in your life? So it's very Episcopal, but like the middle way of, you know, let's genuinely be mindful about this. Let's be mindful of the reality that like your kid is going to encounter alcohol, mm -hmm. right? And you as a human being are going to encounter alcohol. And also, let's talk about what that means, how it affects the body. What would it drink? To, what would it mean to drink mindfully? Or how do you know when maybe you're a person who can't drink mindfully, right? Because there are people who will say that. They'll say, try to, to moderate. Moderation wasn't for me and I don't drink. So having an openness about it. Um, your your podcast is about being a learner. And I think about being a learner and, and curiosity is so knit into that for me. And so what if we looked into this and said, I'm not going to live at either spectrum. I'm actually going to live in curiosity. I'm going to ask questions about the role of alcohol in the, our culture today. I'm going to ask questions about my own drinking, kind, compassionate questions of all of these realities. You know, I, I'd be curious to hear because I would just imagine, because this is even true of myself until I started, you know, until I encountered your book, of we aren't necessarily that mindful about alcohol, or we we can tend not to, even followers of Jesus. And I would just love to hear, because you have spent so much time, I mean, even just what you were talking about, how the role that alcohol plays in our culture, I'd just be curious to hear what's something about alcohol that maybe you've... Um, recently learned that because you've been more mindful that maybe maybe for those of us like myself have just haven't really thought about because we haven't been mindful well it part of it is mindfulness um because the other thing i'll say is like i didn't know all of this before i was sober like it was yeah. when i decided yeah. to look into my relationship with alcohol that i learned all this and so you know, it is very common to not know, which is actually part of why I'm trying to tell yeah. people is I'm like, this is not something that we recreationally yeah. want to read about, you know, yeah. no one's grabbing, you know, the, the DSM five is their beach read, right? Like this is something that I researched because I wanted to get this deeper dive. So be kind to yourself. If you don't know a ton about it, it just happens to be something I've researched. Um, mm -hmm. I think for me, if you were to ask me like kind of what was the biggest thing that you just didn't realize was kind of going on in all of this for me, it was mental health. Um, mm -hmm. I did not understand the extent to which alcohol is a depressant and it makes sense to me now, but you know, you look at alcohol in our society and it's sold to us as fun. You know, mm -hmm. it is the thing we do to go out, cut up, you know, you look at a movie montage of drinking everybody's dancing and everybody's having a blast 
But the reality of what it takes as far as chemically, what it does to your body is it actually subdues your brain's ability to function. That's how it acts as a downer. And so it brings us down. So we're not as anxious, right? Because our brain is not functioning at its kind of highest, fullest capacity. But then when we come out of that, when our brain is finally the alcohol is leaving the system and the brain's coming back, it actually gives us anxiety because it's coming back and it's trying to recalibrate. And so we get um, what some of us call hangxiety. So you have a hangover and you have anxiety. Hmm. And so not really realizing that so much of my mental health pattern of having a depressive funk and also anxiety disorder um, what was definitely being deeply exacerbated by alcohol. Um, I am not a free of anxiety person. Uh, just, you know, unfortunately, I wish I could tell you that that's like, just quit drinking and you're set. That's not how it works. Um, but like, I don't take anxiety medicine anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no Xanax in my life, right? I can deal with and cope with anxiety when it comes up in a way that it was so incapacitating before. And I, and I say that just because um, one of the really great things is even reduced drinking is going to help you manage the fact that it is a depressant and the fact that it will cause that anxiety as it's exiting your system. So even a reduction in drinking is going to be really, really helpful for someone who is struggling with the toll that it might be taking on their mental health. You know, another thing that you touched upon earlier that I would love to have you elaborate on is the long, is the non-linear nature of recovery as well. Because in the and it's just a tendency in all of us to think, you know, I'm gonna fall, I'm gonna stop drinking, or I'm gonna stop whatever, and then I'm gonna follow, you know, steps one, two, three, and before you know it, I'm I'm good. But usually, it's you know, I stop drinking, and then a couple weeks pass, maybe I have another drink. I stop, I start, I stop, I start, so on and so forth. Talk to me about um, just kind of how your your non-linear nature and recovery played out in yourself and even what you've mm-hmm. noticed in other people as well as you've helped them along the way. Yeah, it's something I'm, I'm, I'm really passionate about just because of how it played out in my life. Um, you know, when I was, I would say just in that very, very first, you know, um, Almost like you wake up in the morning and you have a hangover and you're like, that's it. I'm done. Right. But by five Mm -hmm. o'clock, you're tired and you just want to go out drinking or you just want to have a drink with your friend. And so things shift. I kind of was in that stage and was like, I want to start putting together a couple days. You know, I have a couple sober days here. Um, ranging all the way to uh, you know, doing Lent, right? So 40 days of not drinking. Um but not doing Lent super mindfully. Like I didn't have a lot of coping tools. I didn't uh, supplement my my path with other good things. That's another really big thing is you can white knuckle not drink. But the most important thing I think is to not drink and also be adding in those other ways of life because mm-hmm. that void will want to be filled, right? And so finally, though, I did my first pass where I was like, I strive to not drink again and I didn't drink for two months which was the longest I'd ever not had a drink um but then I didn't have any friends and I was invited to go out with a group of people and I said okay you know I don't I don't have friends I don't have community so I'm gonna go drink but what was interesting is a a major shift had happened I didn't have any more alcohol in my house and I never brought alcohol back into my house I went back to drinking purely social And, you know, at the time I really felt like a failure, like every time I thought I wasn't going to drink again and I drank again, I was really, really hard on myself, but I had started to try to be like, okay, wait, you know, don't be so hard on yourself, trying to do some of that shame resilience. And what was interesting is I look back at it and that going back to drinking was actually very important in my path, because what happened is I had this harsh juxtaposition of This is how you feel when you don't drink at all. This is how you feel when you drink. And I was able to look into those two realities and say, I want to be sober. And when I finally quit drinking, I woke up that morning, you know, I had planned my day one and I wrote down yet another day one. 
because I felt like I had so many or yet another day one. And I put the date and that is still my sobriety date. I'll hit five years in November. And I share that because in that moment, I didn't know, you know, to me, it was one mm-hmm. more ch- shot, you know, like I was just going to keep trying. And so I really encourage people, if you're one of those people who like me, you've kind of gone back and forth and back and forth. You might be in a state of like, gosh, I feel like I just keep failing at this. And yet your yet another day one could be the day one that sees you into five years of of sobriety, right? Mm-hmm. So continuing that push forward and trying to to really buoy ourselves with the fact that yes, it is non-linear, right? It's not mm-hmm. a stop and it's not a start. The other thing is, um, you know, you mentioned when I work with clients and a lot of my clients don't know where they want to end up with alcohol. They are in mm-hmm. that place because I really love to to try to care for people who are in that middle place that I was in. Yeah. And they're like, I don't want to keep drinking the way I'm drinking right now, but the idea of never drinking again, I don't know about that either. And so being able to say, you know, what, what would tapering look like? Like, how would we just sort of reduce your alcohol consumption and give you some tips, you know? Um, let's go on some events sober. Not necessarily never going to drink again, but what if you went to a concert and didn't drink? Like, how can we do that? Because what I find is that every time you do one of those big things that you think you can't do sober and you come home and you didn't drink, you're like, oh, I can do this, right? Like, I actually have the capacity to do this. And if we set people up to say, don't drink, never drink again, that's it. And if you don't, you're failing. I think that it can be de- motivational for some people. And what I'm trying to do as a coach is explicitly get us into what is motivational for you. And a good um, example of how this is different is like for some people, day counting is so motivational. Like Mm -hmm. they do not want to see that ticker go back to zero. For other people, it can be triggering um, and they'll just kind of keep moving their day one and they'll binge because they're like, well, tomorrow is my reset. So I'm going to binge tonight. Right. And so for some people, it's actually motivational to not have that day counter because it feels like pressure on them. So in coaching, I'm trying to work with people and figure out what makes you tick, what helps you succeed, knowing that healing paths are quite different for different people. And I think that that different path reality is also part of nonlinear recovery. Mm -hmm. You know, you mentioned uh, a term and you said shame resilience. Can you unpack that a little bit for me? Yeah, I I mean, to give full credit where credit is due, I'm a certified Daring Way facilitator. So I worked with Brene Brown and her team to get trained in her work. Um, Mm -hmm. And when I use that language, you know, shame is inevitable. We all have shame. Uh, But knowing how to receive it in a way that we can cope with it, to be completely honest, and um, helping us know when shame is what's driving the bus, I encourage my clients to keep a log of just when like that kind of red hot fiery feeling, you know, write down what happened. Someone said that to you. Cause if we can get to the core of the triggers of that shame, that's also actually going to help us figure out what's motivational and demotivational. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then figuring out techniques for how to talk back to it. So if shame is at the door and shame is trying to come for me, I have mantras that I say to kind of like, put shame in its place so that it is not running my brain because it will take over. Right. And so Mm -hmm. how do I talk back to that? What are some care practices? It's really kind of like setting up coping tools that are for the mental space of when shame is really kind of trying to come for us. Yeah. As much as you're comfortable, would you mind sharing one of your mantras? Yeah, actually I share this in the book. So it's a great thing to ask. Um, So I had this moment, you know, I quit drinking and I was in my office and uh, I just got this memory of something I did when I was drinking that I was really ashamed of. And it felt like someone like punched me in the stomach. You know, you get that like guttural feeling, even just from Mm -hmm. a memory. And I I just like, I felt like I could like fall out of my chair. Like it was just, I was so ashamed at this moment in my life. And I took, just took a second placed my hand on my heart and I said, I cannot go back, but I can move forward differently. Mm. And I am moving forward differently because the liberating moment was Aaron, you don't drink and you're not going to do that again. Like that was something you did when you were drunk and you don't drink anymore. So 
even to this day, like when I have moments where I'm ashamed of something I did in my past, I, I, I will put my hand on my heart and say, I cannot go back, but I can move forward differently because that's true, right? Theologically, we can live our whole lives in the past and it won't be very good for us because I can't go back, mm-hmm. but I can begin to put other practices in play or I can apologize if I've done something that's wrong. And that is what it means to move forward differently, right? So that's something that's still still really close to my heart. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. One, uh, I, I want to go back to your story and, and back to the book. And I would love to have you elaborate on uh, a couple of quotes that really stood out to me. The first one is, you say, the crisis I experienced when I left fundamentalism was similar to the spiritual crisis I entered when I left alcohol behind. Can you elaborate on that and kind of talk about some of the similarities between them? Yeah, I would love to. Um, you know, leaving fundamentalism was really, really difficult for me. And and I I think it's important to note that I, I loved my church. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, so leaving that church, I mean, I loved these people. I loved yeah. my college pastor. Um, I actually don't hold any malice toward the people, you know, I just was no longer theologically aligned there and it was very grievous, right. It was very grievous to have to, to part ways with, with these individual people, just because we were at a theologically different place and there, and harm had been done over the years, right. Theological harm had happened, um, I just currently don't hold like grudges against people because we were all doing the best we could at the time, as far as I'm concerned, but yeah. it was very hard and it was a shift in what I believed. It was also this intense questioning. Like I started to really ask myself, okay, this is what I've kind of been told to believe about God. What, but what do I believe? What's true for me? What sits right in, in myself and in my soul? And the same thing is kind of true when I was looking into alcohol. It's like, I've been told alcohol is fun and yet it makes me feel terrible and it makes me depressed. I've been told that alcohol is really good for like dating and being on relationships. And yet I know that it checks me out and I'm not present to the people I'm with. So it's actually not a tool for connection, is it? So the ways that I was like looking into scripture and actually reading scripture differently and interrogating it and saying, I don't think what I've been told about scripture is true. I was looking into alcohol and I was like, I don't think what I've been told about alcohol is true. And I'm reading all these scientific studies that say the same thing. But then it's also the community that we build around alcohol, looking at these people and being like, I have no malice towards any of these people, but I'm also really afraid that I'm going to lose all these relationships. I don't know that I'm still going to be friends with these people at the church that I'm leaving the same way. I don't know if I'm still going to be accepted into the communities that were really built around drinking if I don't drink. And that war of this, you know, fundamentalism does not sit right with my soul and drinking Mm -hmm. does not sit right with my soul. Mm -hmm. But there is real cost here. There is something to lose in letting these things go. And I've been very grateful that, you know, I have not lost a ton of the relationships that I, that I built. Certainly there are people that fall away over the years for a variety of different reasons, but um, it doesn't change the fear, right? It doesn't change the fear that keeps you out of being able to do it. So those are just a few of the ways that I, you know, as I reflected, was kind of shocked. I was like, I would not have expected those things to be so similar in the way that they were spiritual journeys for me. Yeah. Uh, Another quote that I would love to have you elaborate a little bit more on is, uh, and it's just interesting because I think even the previous quote and this quote just gets to the heart of like the nuance of, of mm. your book and everything, which I really appreciate, is uh, you say one phenomenon I've noticed is the connection between alcohol culture and progressive ideas, including within spiritual communities. Can you unpack that connection a little bit? Yeah, well, it's something I encountered and, and very much participated in because, you know, I'm 21. I've just started drinking. I'm also not one of those Baptists anymore. You know, I'm not a teetotaler, like uh, sort of the I'm a cool Christian vibe of like, we're cool, we're different. We're not like that other church that you've been with. We drink, right? That is just like a part of it. You know, theology on tap is something that comes to mind. And the Mm -hmm. reality is, you know, it is good to build community together. Um, 
but what I, what I say in the book and what I hope for is that I, I want us to, to, to give ourselves more credit. Like it's not mm-hmm. that we drink. It is that we believe really beautiful things and, um, and not even to, you know, have negativity toward those other churches. I personally want to live in a way where I'm not being rude or mean to other churches as well. Right. Like they have other beliefs around that. Um, certainly when harm is happening, we can call out and name harm, but like, what if the main focus was just like, these are the really beautiful things we believe instead of alcohol is the thing that we're going to say is our hook. And I have met with multiple clients who are sort of like, yeah, I, I go to this really beautiful progressive church and I love it, but there's nothing for me socially that doesn't have alcohol. And one of the things that's really interesting is statistically Zoomers really aren't drinking very much. And so mm-hmm. I've got a lot of people either in my private messages on Twitter or, or just people who are like 20 and they follow me and they're like, I can't find stuff to do at church that isn't a 20s and 30s group that's going to the pub. And so acknowledging that that is something that has been used as kind of like a draw like a way for us to identify ourselves and, and sometimes identify ourselves again, up and against other, other communities. And I think what I'm seeing is it's starting to become a stumbling block. There are actually people mm-hmm. who are like, I think I'll just go to yoga because mm-hmm. yoga isn't encouraging me to drink. And I'm trying to work on my relationship with alcohol. And um, I just think, and certainly not, this is not a, um, true of all things is not a blanket statement but if a church is sort of very alcohol centric it's important to acknowledge that there are sober people or people who just drink really moderately or who just don't want to always be out drinking who probably want to join your church because of your values Mm -hmm. and um, centering those values is i think the real draw to entering into that new way of understanding our belief You know, I'd I'd love to hear what are some of the things that maybe are just beliefs about alcohol that are just commonly held, but they aren't what we think they are or they aren't true. Yeah, I have. I talk a little bit about this um, specifically in in health, I think is something that we uh, research has been updated, but sort of the colloquial knowledge of research is not as known. so one of them just being, you know, there was this whole belief that like red wine is good for your heart, right? They've actually now declared, and it was years ago, that there's no safe amount of alcohol. There's no such thing as a safe amount of alcohol entering your body. But you'll still hear people saying like, oh, I drink red wine because it's good for my heart. And the reality is that it's actually not good for your heart. It's actually really bad for our health. Um, the other thing is like sleep. People are like, oh, alcohol helps me go to sleep. But alcohol, when it when it exits the system, as I was talking about before, that anxiety, it can actually wake you up in the middle of the night. So we know that alcohol actually impairs our sleep, that some comorbidities occur between sleeping disorders and alcohol use. Um, there are comorbidities between alcohol use disorder and depression, as I mentioned earlier, and comorbidities between alcohol use disorder and anxiety. And yet these colloquialisms still exist or these ways that we think about it still exist. Um, yeah, so the, the health part is really big for me. I also just think anytime we begin to equate alcohol with connection, and I alluded to this earlier, um, alcohol, because it is kind of taking us out of our body, does not foster connection in the way that I think we often portray right? Mm -hmm. Not saying it isn't something that we all do together. You know, we, people are all in the watering hole. I get that. Right. But as far as, um, how it helps us show up and be present for each other, it is actually acting biologically against that. Um, doesn't mean that moderate drinking is something that I'm, I'm referring to, but if we're, you know, if we're drunk, we're not paying attention to the person in front of us. Um, We're not remembering what we said. We're not remembering what they said. And so, so real connection is actually that presence to one another. 
And Mm -hmm. I think about relationships and church and social things. And my thing is like, I want to be present to you. Like, Mm -hmm. I want to receive you and I want to hear what you have to say. And I want to remember that story about your sister and, you know, be able to hold her in my heart when I think about her on that day. You know, like, I want to be able to be present to you. And Mm -hmm. I think alcohol is sometimes sold as this way that we connect with each other. Mm -hmm. You know, I also want to talk about the person who maybe we we see someone in our life and we're just concerned. We're concerned maybe because of their drinking too much or or for whatever reason. I'd I'd love for just your thoughts on for the person who is just concerned about their friend, you know, their dad, their mom, their family member, whoever it is. What would you say to how to, how to even begin a conversation because maybe to them it doesn't seem like a problem? but you you're just concerned for them yeah and first of all i want to say like all my love goes out to to those of us who have people in our lives that we feel concerned about um Mm -hmm. because it's a hard weight to bear right to see that and to, to to worry about that and to fear that for other people um my my suggestion is possibly unique, but um, I've had plenty of people ask me this, right? You, you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And what I always tell people is I say, the first step is I would encourage you to do interior work about your relationship with alcohol. And the reason for that, um, unless the person's sober, right? And they are, mm-hmm. you know, have done some other work around that. But the reason I say that is because there's a vast difference between saying to someone, uh, you drink too much and I'm worried about you and how you drink and you need to look at that in your life. Um, doesn't matter how compassionately we say that it's you, 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 right. Mm -hmm. And even if again, compassionately, very compassionately, that defensiveness can really kick in. And when we end up in a situation where a person is super defensive, they're not listening or they're not necessarily, I shouldn't say they're not listening, but it's very hard to hear when you feel triggered and defensive. And often if a person is struggling in their relationship with alcohol, it's going to sound really hard to hear that. Right. So there's that. But then what if you go up to a person and you say, you know, I've been doing a lot of work around this in my life. Um, I've been reading these books, uh, you know, and I, and I really started to look into my relationship with alcohol and, I don't know. I just, I kind of want to do like a dry January or a sober October. Would you like to do that with me? I'd like to have some accountability and some friendship in this. And I was just wondering if we could do that together. Mm-hmm. You'd be surprised the shift that happens when it's invitational and it's, I'm looking into this part of my life. And I was wondering if you would like to be a companion with me mm-hmm. because The other thing is you can say, I realized how hard it is to go out with my friends and not drink. It's super hard. And so to share out of your own experience is very invitational for a person who is maybe especially in those tender, tender moments of worrying about their own relationship with alcohol. Um, You know, to this day, when I talk about what I do, which, you know, talk about taboo topics, like people... What do you do? Everyone wants to know your career. And I'm like, I don't know if y'all want to know my career. Um, <laughs> but I but I say, you know, I, I work with people who want to change their relationship with alcohol. You know, people are like, why'd you get sober? And I'm like, you know, I just really started to notice how it made me feel. You know, even in the way I talk about what I do, mm-hmm. I try to use I statements. And I'm like, yeah, I just really want to help people who are struggling because sometimes you don't even know if you want to quit drinking, but you know that it's a real challenge for you. And I mean, literally like, 24 hours ago, I said that to someone and they were like, I've been one, like it was, they started to, to respond and to say, I've been thinking a lot about my relationship with that call, like a stranger, yeah. you know? And so you'd be shocked when you're being a little bit vulnerable, when you're being a little bit open and you're saying, I'm doing this work, how much people don't go straight to, oh, this is accusatory. This is an attack on me. Also, you will benefit from doing that work on yourself regardless. Mm -hmm. And so I just always encourage start inside yourself and then that'll make you more compassionate to how hard it is. Because I got to tell you, I was not compassionate to how hard it was until I 
like quit drinking, mm -hmm. right? Like we don't know until we know. And so I would say start there and then try to offer those bids, those invitations into partnering in the work. Hmm. Well, I got a couple other questions I want to ask you, but before that, I always love giving people just the opportunity to talk about anything that's just top of mind that we haven't talked about. I know there's so many different directions that we could go in from the book and from many different things, but is there anything just top of mind that you want to make sure that we cover? I don't know. You're doing really great. I mean, oh, I, I'm, I'm loving the conversation. I mean, one thing I, I do want to say is like, I consider yeah. myself a lifelong learner. And so this, this idea of like learning being really integral to, to that, you know, I talk about how I would like come home from drinking and read Quitlet books. And I was like yeah. reading studies on alcohol in the body and the brain, you know, kind of nerding out over, over this. And that learning is really powerful. And um, even just like when you were talking about the things that we don't know about alcohol, like looking into mm -hmm. facts and studies and stuff and being like, oh, I'm like learning these different facets of the reality of this. And it's actually helping me quit drinking. And so mm -hmm. I always want to really elevate the importance of learning and being open and being receptive and also that I'm still learning, right? Like mm -hmm. I am not yeah. done. I, I am, I chose to quit drinking, but I am still figuring out, you know, I was talking to a client earlier today and I was like, you know, I may not turn to alcohol, but there's plenty of times that I turn to that TV and TikTok yeah. and, you know, food and all these other things. And so I don't speak as someone who's like, Whoo, so glad I fixed that. And now I'm on to the next thing. It's a, it's a consistent process. And it means that I'm still learning. And then I'm partnering with clients and individuals who, who want support and, and encouragement as they go into this process of learning. Mm. You know, that, that, what you said brought to mind another quote, and I would love to have you elaborate, especially as it pertains to learning. Well, as you say, I had to lose fundamentalism to find God, and I had to lose alcohol to find myself. Can you elaborate about that and kind of even like just the learning process for you throughout that? Yeah, uh, what a what an intense statement I I, I stated. Uh, <laughs> sometimes people read your book back to you, yeah. and you're like, "Geez, why would I say that?" No, oh. um, no, I, I do think it was it was this reality, you know, to go back to when we were talking about fundamentalism and 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 alcohol. Um, you know, I had just always been told who God was, and I don't know that I'd ever really felt like I. I mean, I certainly felt the movement of the Holy Spirit in my life. I don't want to denigrate that, but I don't know that I really felt like I knew God because the way I, God was portrayed to me was not something I connected with. Right. Yeah. And so losing fundamentalism meant I got to find God, like God, as I know God today, um, doesn't mean I ever didn't love God. It was just like, I, I kind of got a new glimpse into God, you know, and was like, Oh, now it's like this, this, this is what I kind of was yearning for when I was trying to love you before. Right. Yeah. Um, and in terms of, of, of alcohol, I mean, I really think of, of how much alcohol kind of shrouded me in these ways of, you know, the, the depressive effect of it. Um, I talk about like realizing I kind of like slouched and like, didn't kind of want to make the, didn't want to look in the mirror when I would walk past it. Like my self-esteem was really, really low. And I was very disconnected from my body. Um, just didn't have that kind of mind, body and soul connection with myself. And, I look back now and I have such an attentiveness and awareness of like, who I'm feeling, feeling this way, or this emotion is welling up and ooh, I hate emotions, but also I've just got to deal with them, you know, but it's, it's wild to look back because I, I wouldn't have cognitively said, oh, I don't feel all those things or I'm numb or I'm not dealing with this mm. because when it's a way of life, you're feeling some things as you understand them, right? Mm -hmm. But when I quit drinking, it was like this palpable presence of the Holy Spirit was in my life. And I started to really feel like these callings of like preaching this service. It was so clear to me in a way that, I mean, I was very upset about it, but it was still clear, <laughs> right? It's still clear. But it just this, this awakening and this awareness and even my body. I talk about how like 
I went to go order a meal at a restaurant that I'd had when I had been drinking and it was just so salty. And I was like, oh my God, are my taste buds waking up too? Like, is everything in my body like coming back into being? Is that what's mm-hmm. really happening here? And um, my self-love and just self-esteem really boosted because I was able to like look into my body and be compassionate toward it and care for it and have a real awareness of what I was doing to it, you know, at mm-hmm. any, at any given day. And so, so it was that awakening to understanding God in the way that God had always been, that I just didn't no. know God had always been. And then awakening to who I am and how I had really kind of always been beloved and and beautiful, but, but couldn't see that past mm-hmm. the challenges that I think the whole of drinking and depression and anxiety and all of that had really clouded my understanding of that. You know, I would just, I would just love for you to elaborate any more that you talked about, about listening to our bodies as well. Cause we've talked about it a little bit, but, um, and anything else about listening to our bodies as it pertains to alcohol or even, even just beyond that. Yeah. I think bodies are so wise and I, there's just a real wisdom in the body that I was not able to connect with. Um, I just notice, like I notice aches and I treat them, mm-hmm. you know, it's like kind of, instead of ignoring something, I feel like I'm like, oh, I need to stretch or I need to care yeah. for that. And when you um, aren't paying attention to your body, and especially when you're kind of checking out of your body through alcohol use, you maybe don't even notice those things. Um, even just like sleep like being able, and I'm still an insomniac. I'm still constantly working on that. Sorry. I have a cat, cat visiting us. Um, you're good, but I, but just being able to sort of wake up in the morning and have these check-ins with myself. Um, something that I really encourage my clients to do is just morning check-ins regardless of whether or not they're going to quit drinking or just because the clarity of the morning, how's my body feeling? And often one of the most powerful things people tell me is they'll kind of check in with their body after not drinking and then check in with their body the morning after drinking. And they're like night and day, you know, like so much different. So um, having that ability to pause, I think the other thing is it takes time. Um, I didn't sort of wake up one morning and suddenly my body's loud now and we're having all these conversations, but I allowed myself to sit with my body and to begin to say, how am I feeling? What's feeling here? Or even like feelings around my gut or, or, uh, um, not my actual gut, but my like intuition gut, you know, uh, I would go to events and be like, I'm not enjoying this. I'm going to go home, which is radical idea as opposed to like, (laughs) When I would drink and be like, yeah, this isn't fun, but there, but I'll have a couple of drinks. I'll hang out or whatever and stay past long past when I wanted to go to bed. And now, you know, I still go out, right. Mm-hmm. Um, I go out to places where there's alcohol and I have no problem with that, but I'm not closing down the bar. Like, obviously no. I'm like, no, I'm tired. I want to go to bed. Like I, I really, my body really needs rest now and being able no. to note that and to, to not stay in rooms where I don't want to be like, I just, I'm not numbing myself in order to stay present to something that doesn't really give me life. No. Yeah. Well, as we're closing, I would, I would love for, for you to contrast what, I, what for me personally is probably my biggest takeaway from the book. And you talk about these two mindsets and you talk about the mindset of, do I have a problem versus is this bringing me joy? Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate and contrast both of those? Yeah, I think those are like very pivotal questions because, um, mm-hmm. you know, you can ask the question, do I have a problem in a way that the answer is always no, um, because we can always find, you know, a Hollywood actor whose life has gone off the rails and be like, well, I, that never happened to me. So I yeah. don't have a problem. So I'm fine. This is the cognitive dissonance that I talk about in the book that we will always find a way for that answer to be no. And also is it the right question? This is something that was really helpful for me and my um, sort of early sobriety work was, was listening to sober influencers and writers who were saying like, is this even the right question? Because Mm -hmm. is the issue that I have an issue or a problem, or is it that I'm not happy, right? Regardless of if it's so problematic that I am forced by something outside of me to change it, why is my joy not worth its own right? Right? Like I don't feel good when I wake up, I have chronic migraines and this is definitely exacerbating them. All of these things are happening. And yes, 
I might still have my job. I might still be doing okay. But shifting the question to does it bring me joy actually gets at what I want my life to be ordered around. I don't want my life to be ordered around who I'm, I'm, I'm surviving. Like, please count me out right now. If all we're trying to do is like survive. No, I, and I really think we are like created by God with a birthright of an abundant life, you know, and, and I want an abundant life for myself and I want an abundant life for all beloved children of God. And so it's like, I yearn for us to privilege that question wherever it may lead us, because that is a question I think that we can stake our lives on in a way that I don't know that I would want to stake my life on the question of, is this the worst thing? I think it's Laura McCowan who says like, is this the worst thing? Or, you know, is there something better for me? Something like that. Mm. But there's Mm. been a couple of different writers who have kind of shifted the question. I I obviously take my own pass at it in the book, but spiritually, are we living in service to the problems of our lives or are we living in service to how the spirit might be calling us into a profound joy? Mm. Well, just as we're wrapping up, uh, your subtitle is so great because it's the joy of a mindful relationship with alcohol. Just as we close, would you mind just elaborating on that joy just a little bit more? Yeah. I, I think joy is such a odd word because in the spiritual world, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. Um, I talk about how angels show up in the Bible and, and they, the first thing they say is fear not like angels were apparently very terrifying. And so um you know i think about angels showing up to mary and it was this equal parts terror and amazement and so when i think of the joy i think of it as equal parts terror and amazement because it is this really hard thing and i'm so compassionate to how hard it is because our world has made it so hard i mean our world has gone out of its way to make this a very difficult question but there's so much amazement and possibility for awakening And for me, again, my passion is meeting people in that middle place. And so if I had written a book that was like the joy of never drinking again, ever, um, that would be fine. I'm sure it would be great, but it wouldn't Mm -hmm. speak to where I feel called to be, which is to try to help people who are in that middle place, because not everyone has clarity around where they want to end up with this. But there is joy to be found. And no matter where you are today, there is, this is a starting place. That doesn't have to be impossible. It is not impossible. And you can trust being led by the spirit into however that healing uh, might take fruition in your life. So I wanted to offer to people an invitation into a joy that can be as mysterious and, you know, as, and, uh, and as unknown as you might feel about where this might end up. Hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing that. I know that people are going to want to keep up with you and get your mm-hmm. book, Sober Spirituality. Where's the best place for people to go to do that, Erin? Um, you can grab this pretty much everywhere you buy books. So um, Amazon, Baker Book House, uh, you can follow me on um, most social media platforms at uh, just my full name, Erin Jean Ward. Um, I love connecting with people. Please say hello. Uh, I would love to hear what you think. Um, just know that I, I enjoy connecting with people. And um, my website, ErinJeanWard.com, has a contact form in there. If you have thoughts or questions, uh, don't be a stranger. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. And just thanks for doing the work and for sharing it with us. And thank you for doing the work. This is a real honor and a gift. Bless you. As I was reflecting on my conversation with Aaron, here's two things that really stood out to me from it. One is what we were talking about with our bodies and that our bodies tend to signal to us about what is happening and whether or not we are enjoying what is happening to us, whether or not it's bringing us joy or whether it's causing us distress as well, or whether or not we need to address something. And it it made me think of, that's really just something that is true in, in life is that the systems that 
we're in, the relationships that we're a part of, if you look for them, you can see the signs. You can see the signs that things are going well, or you could see the signs that things aren't going well, and the signs that maybe you need to address something. And and they, they just become apparent to you. And it's, it's a little bit of a funny example, but what came to my mind is, uh, is my dog, Charlie. And that whenever he has to go to the bathroom, he lets me know. He lets us, he lets me and my wife know that, hey, it is time for me to go. It is time for something to be addressed. And I think that's just a good thing for us to think about in our life for just everything of just paying attention to the signs. And, and also just what Aaron was saying is that, that sometimes it's difficult to figure out what the signs are if you haven't been doing it for a long time and to be patient with ourselves and to give us, uh, to give ourselves some grace if we're not able to see it right away, but also to have the perseverance to continue to, to push through and to pay attention and to look for the signs as well. And the other thing is just that, that paradigm shifter of shifting from, do I have a problem to, is this bringing me joy? And just asking ourselves about that in, in maybe, maybe every area of life that the better question is not, well, do I have a problem or is it, is it wrong for me to do this? Maybe the better question is, is, is this bringing me joy? Is this bringing me life? Is this filling me up? And just listening to what the answer is and figuring out where to go from there. So those are a couple of things that are standing out to me from this conversation. And again, if you want to continue this lifelong lifelong learning journey with me, please subscribe to my Substack, where again, I'm just giving you three recommendations each week of some of the things that I'm currently learning and enjoying the most from. And again, it could be anything, just has to be something I'm learning from and enjoying as well. And again, you can check out the the show notes for my Substack, where I just give out all those and you can subscribe right there. So I think that's all that I have for today and listening all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Caleb Mason and until next time, keep learning and keep growing.